I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're grateful you're here tonight. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and our prayer is going to be given by Candace Pollock. And then right after that, uh, Candace and her husband are going to uh, sing the song, Changed. Hello. You know, we just need to talk to the Lord as if we would talk to anyone else. And so, Father... We just come to you right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I ask that the word would go forth with power. That, Lord, you would just anoint that word. And if there's anyone out there, Lord, that hears the sound of our voices, that, Lord, that you would touch their hearts. You would just plow the stony parts of their heart, Lord, and allow the word to be planted so that it would bring forth abundant fruit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in control. We thank you, Father, that you are who you are, and thank you for all the blessings, because all good things come from you, Lord. And we just give you all the praise and the honor and the glory, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Changed Light from darkness Life from death I'm changed My granite heart Unmovable and cold as ice Transfigured by the love and grace Of Jesus Christ Changed by the blood of the Lamb Changed, oh yes I'm formed by the great I am I'm Filled to overflowing through life's corridors and streets I've joined the living waters To wash my Savior's feet Changed by the great I am changed I've been washed by the love of the Lamb I'm changed now I flow through eternal victory In the river of life that streams from Calvary Oh yes, Lord Changed, changed, changed I am changed, oh changed Changed, changed, oh, I've been changed. Love is patient, love is kind, changed. His love is always on my mind, I'm changed. Doing unto others as my Savior leads. Laying down my life to help them meet their needs Changed by the blood of the Lamb Changed, oh yes I'm formed by the great I am I'm changed 
overflowing to life's corridors and streets. I've joined the living waters rush to wash my brother's feet. Yes, Lord. Changed. Oh, I'm changed. Changed. I am changed. 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 Love is patient. Love is kind. Changed. Oh, let him change you. Love is always on my mind, I'm changed. Doing unto others as my Savior leads. And I'm laying down my life to help them meet their needs. Are you doing that? Changed by the blood of the Lamb. Be changed. Formed by the great I am changed. Be Overflowing through life's corridors and streets And join the living water's rush To wash your brother's feet Let yourself be changed Changed by the blood of the blessed Thank you so much, uh, Sister Candace and Alex. Beautiful music and uh, heartfelt. Thank you for taking the time to share that with us. Uh, last week, I commented on the natural uh, flow of artistic expression that comes through the ministry uh, at times. And when you choose to name names, which I did last week, uh, I neglected to mention uh, some people who, uh, you know, that's what happens when you name names, you forget. For instance, Seth Motor, uh, his skills on tech and our web design and keeping things running. Uh, Earl Erskine, uh, AKA Bishop Earl, and his oil painting. Uh, Jed Casper, Adam Guyman are both uh, in-house poet laureates. Uh, Cassidy, my daughter, and her contributions uh, in film, like Girl and Boy, and then uh, Coming in the Future, God. Everybody has, Kathy Maggie has artistic abilities with the children. Uh, we just, I just think it's really an important thing uh, that comes out of people uh, who believe to be able to create, just like Candace and Alex just created beautiful music for us. God is a creator, we're made in his image. So if I've missed anybody else for your creative labors and things, please forgive me. Um, that's how I live up to my title of jackass, is I forget things. And uh, so uh, with that, how about a moment from the Word. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Every now and again, I'm able to uh, teach something on Sundays, either in milk or meat, that bears repeating. And tonight, I'm going to do that very thing from a teaching that we did in meat last week. In our uh, gathering, which you can see as a shameless plug, we, uh, we stream live our services at 10 a.m. on Sundays and at 2.30 p.m., uh, milk and meat consecutively. In the first epistle of John, we find ourselves in chapter 5, and John writes, listen closely to what John says here. These things, this is toward the end of the epistle, I have written unto you that you excuse, I, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. This is why I've written these things unto you, this epistle, to you that believe on the name of Jesus, the Son of God. He says that you will know you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So in the previous, uh, he, he says, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. I've written this epistle to you so that you will know that you have eternal life and so that you will believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, why does he do that? Why does he say that? In the previous verse at 12, he writes, he that has the Son has life. 
He that has not the Son of God has not life. Okay? But the Greek, that's the King James translation, the Greek is better understood to say, he that is having the Son has life. He that is having the Son. Not he that has, he that is having. So, what does it mean? It means that having the Son is a continuous, continued action on the part of those who believe. It, and it means that there's a question when we pass around the verb, uh, or I mean the quote, once saved, always saved. Okay? There is a, there's a question here that John brings to those who say, once saved, always saved. I was saved, that's it. Because in verse 12, the Greek says, he that is having the Son has life, not he who has had, right? So, remember verse 12 again that I just read, he that is having the Son has life, and he that is not having the Son does not have life. And then he says, these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. There's his audience, those who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he has written this epistle to people who believe on the Son of God, but he says, I've written it that you would believe on the name of the Son of God. That's a really strange thing. I thought he was writing to those who already believed. Why does he say I write so that you may believe? By inserting two words here, we can clarify the whole thing. And I'm gonna insert those words, you ready? These things I have written unto you that, you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life, that you may continue to. Those are the two words I'm throwing in there to help make uh, understanding. That you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. Or in harmony with the verse before, that they will keep on having the Son so that they keep on having life. Uh, John does not seem to question at all whether he's writing to believers. These are the cream of the crop believers in his day and age. And, but it doesn't stop him from saying he's writing to them so that they will continue to believe. Why does he want them to continue to believe if once saved, always saved is a true belief and a true doctrine? People have asked me, why do you continue to do campus uh, and teach the Bible narrative if Christ has had the victory as you teach? And, and if brick and mortar has no real authority or power and the Spirit is doing everything and God knows who are His, why do you continue to teach? And we continue to teach because I'm going to put it to you this way. We do missional efforts to people who are like people out in a vast desert dying of thirst. And we are, and I use this on Sunday, we are sitting behind a big booth that's air conditioned. It has filtered ice water and we are calling to those people who are dying of thirst, and they see us, and they say, that's a mirage. I don't believe in what they're trying to push on me. So I'm not gonna even go and approach and drink that water. That's what it's kinda like to be in a missionary effort. But at the same time, we do church because people who come to Christ and are walking with Christ who aren't fed the word are like people who don't have arms and they're in a big banquet hall, and the tables are too high for them to just use their mouth, so they need someone to scoop up the food and feed them. But when pastors and we don't feed people the word, they can drift away and die and stop having Christ. They can fall from grace. Now, I got this email this morning, and it says, Hi, Sean, I don't know if you remember my son, I'll say Bill, from a few years back. He was on your show, uh, six years ago. He was from this area. He went on several mission trips to Utah and he was in college at the University of Blank. I just want to let you know that my son has now turned from God completely. He says God does not exist and he believes completely in uh, evolution. And it, it says he told us uh, this four years ago and it broke our heart. And then they say, would you be so kind to try to contact him? They give me his contact information. Now, I remember this guy. He was, a, uh, a, he was a filmmaker and he had made films and he actually came and interviewed and did some stuff with films from the university he was working in. Now, fully on fire. And, and so I'm gonna write him and talk to him. First of all, the evolution thing, just put it aside, whatever. But let's talk about what happened, you know? And now, what do people say about someone like this, this guy? They, he was fully a Christian, raised in it, taught it, everything. And now his parents say that he came to them four years ago and say, there is no God. 
What happened? Well, you know what religionists say? They said he never believed in the first place. I would have to say baloney, baloney. He believed in the first place. I knew this kid. He, he believed, of course he believed. No, they, no, 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 if he believed, he would never, ever, baloney. That's why John writes and says, listen, I'm writing to you that believe so that you can continue, so that you can continue to abide in the vine. And I just wanted to make that clear. I think it was important to uh, share tonight on our From the Word. And with that, how about we go to our Board of Direction? Oh. The Spirit is the... It's all right. Okay. Over the course of ministry, you know that I've been greatly diminished in character among the other believers because of my views on the Trinity and eternal punishment of souls and total reconciliation of all humankind and the, my eschatological positions and the purpose and place of the Holy Bible and the personhood of the Holy Spirit and all those things that are just side issues. And, uh, you know, they're just really side issues. Oz Guinness, he wrote a book and it's, uh, he's, uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias endorsed Oz's book. And uh, Oz goes and he says, Christian advocacy must always be independent. Uh, it must always be consistent to itself and shaped decisively by the great truths of the scripture. And in particular, by the five central truths of the faith. So Oz, in his book, he lists five central truths of the faith. Now, you Christians out there, I want you to imagine what do you think those are that this noted Christian apologist from England, what do you think he lists in his book as the five central truths to the faith? Now, prior to reading them off, uh, there are other Christians who have also given the essential truths of the faith. For instance, you may have heard of this guy, Norm Geisler. Norm Geisler is famous for his scholarship. He's a PhD. He says this, listen to this quote, the minimum necessary to believe in order to be saved is, the minimum necessary to believe in order to be saved is, I can't even believe that statement. And he lists 11 things. Are you ready? You have to believe in human depravity according to Dr. Geisler. You have to believe in Christ's sinlessness. Now, we may not uh, disagree. We may agree with many of these, but you know, Christ's deity, I'll just put deity, and I spelled that wrong. Uh, his humanity, and if someone can really articulate these right for me, I'd like to hear them because it's a mystery to me. We can talk all you want, but I don't think it can really be explained. God's unity. Uh, God's triunity. Have to, look at, remember, this is the minimum necessary to be in order to be saved. Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the best-selling Christian authors, PhD of our day. He's given us these. Uh, God's necessity of God's grace. The necessity of God's grace. The necessity of faith. Um, Christ's atoning death. And his bodily resurrection. Now listen, Norman Geisler says this is the minimum. The minimum. You wonder why there's confusion in the body today when you have our experts saying stuff like this, the minimum necessary in order to be saved. It's really funny because Romans 10, 9 says, if thou will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you should be saved. That seems pretty concise. Believe your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So there's the resurrection. Believe in him and be raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Two things. Geisler gives us 11. Okay, my friend Matt Slick, he says, deity of Christ, okay, and you, I, I'm not going to even spell them out because it gets boring, salvation by grace, 
So there's two. Uh, resurrection. This is from his website at karm.org. Uh, the gospel. Now this is the gospel. That's how he puts it. This says the gospel. And monotheism. These are Matt's five. Okay? Now the thing is, Matt, he takes these are like the main uh, categories. He breaks them down. So Matt ends up with 20 because he adds to how he defines these. And so Matt Slick, who's greatly appreciated as a radio show here in Utah and Idaho, he's up there. Geisler gives us 11. And if we go back over here to our friend Oz, Oz says, interestingly enough, that the five are the creation, the fall, the incarnation, the cross, and the spirit of God. That's, those are general five categories he gives in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian. I want to say Sean has five too. I'm going to give you the five. You ready? And I'm going to suggest to you the rest of this can all be put away in the face of the five I'm going to give you. But I'm going to give you five letters. J-E-S-U-S. That's what you need. You can forget this junk because we differ on this stuff. And yet our experts and the people we look to, they are giving us this laundry list when the Bible itself says, look, believe on him, believe he's resurrected. He rose from the dead. That's everything. Believe that and you will be saved. And yet our experts are giving us something different. That's our, uh, that's our time from the Board of Direction. Hope it gave you some insight. Let's go to our topic tonight. <clears throat> which is topic of creation. All right, we've talked about where both the LDS and biblical Christians say where they say matter comes from. Uh, Mormons talk about uh, matter uh, ex materia. That means uh, matter came from matter. And Christians teach uh, creatio ex uh, nihilo, which means God created things out of nothing. Those are the two divergent things. Before getting into the nuts and bolts of the Genesis account, I want to talk about something Christians have a hard time answering, uh, but Mormons have a very easy time answering. And because of the ease with which they can answer this, they often give a, get a leg up when it comes to their missional efforts out into the world. Why did God create the heavens and earth and all that in them is? I want you to ask yourself that question rhetorically. Why did God create the heavens and earth and all that in them is? Before anything, in the beginning, God, he decided to do this. And I want you to answer to yourself or explain in your mind what you would say to somebody as an answer to why. Why did he create the animals, the fish, the birds, the insects, man, the ground, the, the, the corn, the, everything? In Mormonism, humankind was created that human beings might have joy. And really, it's not just human beings, it's also the animal kingdom. It's really anything in its living sphere might grow to its potentiality and have joy. The founder of the faith, Joseph Smith, said, quote, happiness is the founder and design of our existence, and it will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it, happiness. Uh, now, while many people on the outside looking in at Mormonism this might not seem like some big declaration. I mean, of course, yeah, we all want to be happy. So, so Mormonism says God created us so that we can be happy. And, and that might make sense to them. But Arminiists, they declared this far, far many years before Joseph Smith was ever born. You see, in the Old Testament, where uh, we aren't given much insight as to why God created. We, don't, we have one verse, really, in my estimation. The rest of it are declarative statements that he created, that he is the creator, but we don't have any reason that he tells us why. And so what we've done is we've come up with all kinds of conjecture. Well, he created us for fellowship. He created us because he wanted some friends. He created us because he wanted to create something in his image. All these things, but we really don't have anything in scripture that tells us why. 
the declarative statement, Psalms 103 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, he has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's a declarative statement. God did this. Isaiah 45, one, uh, 12 says, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. He's, again, a declarative statement. I've done it. Jeremiah 27, 5, I have made the earth the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed meet unto me. I've done this. And again, because I wanted to do it. But he doesn't tell us why. But the, the insight we get comes in Isaiah 43, 7. It says, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. That is, the, that is one of the most declarative statements as to why. For my glory, he says, right? So from this pretty much single principle, many Christians have decided that God has created the heavens and the earth for man and that man was created to glorify God. That is the biblical purpose that we can read, okay? We know, however, that in Scripture, those that glorify him are always those who are his. And did God also create human beings who are not his that will glorify him too? In other words, do non-believers glorify God in the fact that they don't believe? Apparently, from some scripture, that is true. So, for example, in Exodus 9:12, God says to Pharaoh, who is not his, ready? For this cause I have raised you up. Here we go. For to show in you my power, and that my name might, may be declared throughout all the earth. So even in someone who does not associate, look to, lean to, believe in God, he says, I have created you, to, that you are going to, through your life, show my power. It's really interesting. Later in the New Testament, especially in the Book of Mormons, this idea is more popularly articulated by Paul when he says, when he speaks of God creating vessels of wrath, those who are created for his wrath, and what he calls vessels of his mercy, those who are created for his mercy. Now, just remember, those passages in Romans are all prefaced by, what if I created you as a vessel of wrath and others as a vessel of mercy. It's a what if. Again, that is kind of, that's not a, a real didactic statement. It's a, it's a what if statement to get you to think. So I don't take it as necessarily uh, on the nose, but this idea seems to be uh, supported in the Old Testament passage of Isaiah 49.5, where Isaiah, speaking of the reason the Lord created him, says, the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant. So we have built into the creation these ideas that God has specifically created certain people, certain things to do and be certain ways to accomplish his goal and to bring about what he wants. So from those passages that I've shared with you, pretty much those passages alone, five-point Calvinists have stood on the idea that the reason God has created some uh, is to save them and to show him merciful and then to not save the rest to show that he is just. And by not saving the rest, it shows that his, he is merciful to the others. In other words, by destroying the rest, he is showing his power and love for those he saved. And it's by that contrast that God is glorified in that he saved someone he didn't need to. Oh, praise God. And he didn't save these other. Oh, he is just. And that is the way the five-point Calvinist would explain that. Okay, this is the reason for the five-point Calvinist why God created it. Admittedly, there are a few passages that they kind of present this idea in Scripture. And if you take them singularly, you can build an entire system, superstructure of belief that says, yes, I accept that. But you have to ignore a lot of passages, a lot of passages uh, about uh, God saying, you know, I would that all would be saved. 
and God's saying that he calls to everyone all the time. And God's saying to Jerusalem, Frank Calvinist doesn't believe there's any free will, but Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, you would not, you will not. You had a will and you resisted it. So the Calvinistic idea that he forces when he chooses for people to believe is, is erased by the comment of Christ saying, oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you, but you wouldn't do it. You know, showing a, a modicum of free will in there somewhere. So, recognizing the Arminius and their opposition to five-point Calvinism, uh, Mormonism borrowed from the Arminius view. In a Methodist magazine printed in 1830, uh, it says, God created all things for his own glory, that he had no other view in creating man than his own interest. Uh, that is a ridiculous idea. That is quoting the Calvinistic view. And then the, uh, the article goes on and says, God created men for their own happiness. That is the Arminius view that he created for our own happiness. And obviously Joseph Smith took that view and he included it in his Book of Mormon, which uh, says men are that they might have joy. Men are that they might have, which is equated to happiness in the Mormon church. Happiness, joy, it's all the same. And so they have a place called Happy Valley here in Utah. They believe in the concept of happiness and living for happiness. And, and as Christ came and he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering and difficulty and dying to your flesh and living to the spirit, the LDS view have life is about being happy, right? So uh, why do we have to declare that the object of human existence is to have felicity and joy when our own experience clearly shows that we truly grow the most through difficulty and suffering? And it seems to me that that is often neglected in the ideas uh, of these other uh, views. Why do we make narrow statements that God has created us solely for his glory, just for his own glory, when scripture clearly shows that man will share in the glory of his son. Whereas Romans says, we will be joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. It said, that's a scripture, joint heirs. So God obviously had a plan in mind that he wanted to take humans who would choose to believe on his son, who would choose to suffer with his son, and would choose to turn from the things of the world like his son did, he would make them joint heirs with Christ. That's a biblical scripture. That's not a Mormon concept, but we don't talk about it. We just polarize ourselves into these camps and say, he just created us for his glory, or he created us to just have happiness. When in reality, he didn't create us for either. Uh, he didn't create us for us to have happiness. He created for us to have sorrow, to grow and overcome our flesh. So I would say this, and just to wrap it up tonight as to why, it's a side question, but I wanted to cover it. I think God created us because that's his nature. I think he's a creator. And I think creators create. And I think he created us in his image for the same reason that people create children in their image. I, I, I believe that, I could be wrong. I believe that he created us because God is love. And love is life-giving. Love is life-affirming. Love is life-supporting. The antithesis of love is death and life-taking. So we have in that an image there of giving life or taking life. He is love. He is God. So he gives life. That's part of his nature. And he created us because he's a bestower of good. He's a bestower of light. He's a bestower of love. Is being happy part of that? I'm sure. He enjoys it when we have a good time. He gave us senses of humor. He gave us hilarious things like the human body naked. I mean, come on. So, I mean, uh, he is just, I think he is overjoyed with all of it, but he also has a plan and a purpose in it to bring us around. So why did God create the heaven and earth and all that in them is? I think because God is love and God gives life. And when, and when life created suffers, I think he even steps in and saves it. So I think he's got it all. All right, with that, let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing your calls, making sure you haven't been hitting the cooking sherry, hopefully our operators haven't either. 
We will come to your offline calls. We have Matt, that he has an offline question, and then on line one, we'll take Ryan after this. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people, and we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. Ryan in Virginia, we're going to get to you in a second. I'm going to address this uh, off-air question. But just to let you know, Kirkus uh, Book Review is uh, reviewing Knife to a Gunfight now. It'll be interesting to see what they have to say. We'll report that to you if you've ever heard of Kirkus. Uh, this is from Matt. He says, in the beginning there was only God and he created everything. Why would he create angels that had the propensity to defy him? This very fallacy led to Lucifer challenging his authority because he desired to share the same power as God. Well, I don't know about the fallacy of it leading, uh, wait, part two. This led to the rise or fall, depending on how you look at it, of Satan. The most notorious enemy of God and his followers failed again. Why would you trust God's plan given his track record of many failures? Whoa, and the final part. No, that's the final part. Okay, uh, listen. This is how I see it. And this is how I, when I read the Bible and I put it together, this is how I see it. Uh, God is a creator, like we just said. He's love. Creators create. He creates. And in doing so, he doesn't make automatons. He doesn't make angels who are forced to obey him. He doesn't make human beings who must obey him. He creates people who have the choice. Because anybody could make a claimation and force that claymation to worship him and follow him and dress like him and wear a bow tie like him. Any creator could do that. But this good God said, I'm going to create and I'm going to give them a choice. They can have choice. So in the Garden of Eden, he says, to give you choice, I'm gonna put a tree in that place. Yeah, that's a weird thing, huh? And on that tree, there's fruit and I don't want you to eat it. That's all it was. That's all I'm saying. You can if you want. You don't, if you wanna follow me and show you love me, you won't. If you want to follow your own will, you'll go and do what you want. Well, man went and did what he wanted. Angels went and did what they wanted because he gave us the choice. So if he hadn't given us the choice of that tree, then they would have remained in that, in that garden, just going along, never having a choice, being an automaton, worshiping God, and God being a despot would have been, keep worshiping me, keep sending up your praises just because I've made you to do it and you can't, don't have any choice. No. God says, I want relationship with those who want it with me. And I'm going to give you the choice to choose whether you want it or not. And so that's why there's a risk when you create things and give them free will. There's a risk. There's a risk they're going to disappoint you and turn on you. So I don't think it was a failure. Wouldn't you hate to be under the thumb of a God who created you and didn't give you any choice in your brain? Some people would, maybe. They just, have to, they just, they just do it without thinking. But I would prefer to be able to choose. And I think he respects that, and I think freedom is very important to God, and I think he gives it, and that's why Calvinism is so repugnant to me, because of uh, Jean Calvin's propensity to control and, and demand and force. So anyway, that's my thought on it. Let's go to Ryan in Virginia, we'll, uh, then we'll come to Anthony in Mesa, Arizona, and Mark in Alberta, Canada. Ryan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you? Good, how you doing? I am doing great. You remember me that I called your show one time, like a couple of weeks back? Yes. Hello? I do. Okay. 
Okay, that's cool. That's good. Thank you. Hey, uh, I've started looking at your book and everything. I have just uh, like a couple of uh, small questions. Yeah. I would not take much time. I'll just take a little bit time. Uh, things like, Sean, I mean, you were going into the church. What is actually the anti-Mormon? Because if anything you ask to themselves, and if everything, like if it doesn't sound good to them, they just say it is anti-Mormon. What is anti-Mormon actually? Even yeah. Bible is anti-Mormon or no? Yeah, no, it's not defined, and you make a great point. Uh, it's a thought-killing cliche. That's what it is. If you're talking to LDS people and immediately they can say that's anti-Mormon, it shuts down the ears and eyes of the LDS and they just don't, they automatically have a thought-killing cliche that once they hear anti-Mormon, they just don't even give it, most of them don't give it any attention. So they use that term really well to control what people read and see and think about. Just call someone or something anti-Mormon and they've won half the battle. That is so weird. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. And do you know one of my friends in the LDS church, you, I mean, we had some discussion and she was telling me like, if you die and if you go to the celestial kingdom, and it was so funny, she said to me that you find that Jesus Christ is a Mormon. I said, how come Jesus Christ can be a Mormon? <laughs> yeah, we had a caller one time call and say that Jesus is a Mormon. I thought that was funny too. How come that's possible? I said, Jesus wearing temple garments. Does he have the Does he have the ability to, unlike us, to populate the world or what? He said, No. Jesus says that Jesus is a Mormon. Wow. Said, yeah. That's a nickname. How come that's possible? Jesus, who came into the earth, took our sins, and how come that's possible? Well, you know, Ryan, the thing yeah. is, the thing is, uh, when you talk to LDS people, you have different levels of understanding, and many don't understand, similar to Christians talking to them about the animals on the ark, and a Christian pastor saying that God shrunk the dinosaurs down this big so that they can fit. I mean, re religion in and of itself breeds uh, a desire to kind of keep the blinders on, not think and provide answers that seem ludicrous to the outside world. So you're experiencing that with the LDS. I think in, in the world of religion, the Mormons are like the koala bears. That's how I see them. I really do. They're, they're sweet and they're cuddly and they pretty much just want to get along and eat the, eat the opiate leaves, you know? And, and I prefer that to the, the grizzly bears out there. So I don't know. Okay, and one other thing, uh, the thing is like uh, in the LDS church or in the Mormon church, like why they always keep their finances secret? Like I know some of the churches, they do also tithing, but at the end of the year, they publish the accounting, like, hey, how much money was spent for the church, how much money was spent for the maintaining of the building or whatever. But the LDS church, they never publishes the finances. What's the reason behind it? Is it also a secret like the temple garments or what? You know, I probably, I don't know. I'm sure it's just they don't want to uh, be held up to scrutiny. I asked our CPA, who's a, a, a Christian, I asked him, he's here in the state, why do the LD, why can the LDS church get away with not revealing their finances? And he says they can. That's, that was his flat, straight up answer. He knows the tax law. He says they can. Obviously they can. So they don't want to be transparent on that. And maybe they feel like, you know, people, they're going to be criticized one way or another. So let's just keep people not knowing where everything's going. I, I don't know. But they, they aren't transparent with it. What, Derek? All churches. Yes, they're not. Yes, they're not. At least they should let yeah. it go to the, uh, to the members of the church. Like well, the members the trust money. their leaders. So the members in the LDS church really don't, they don't press for where the money's spent. And by the way, you know, when you think about it, they at least are showing that they are using some fiduciary responsibility with the money they yes. take in. Yes. They own all the property they've ever bought. They've built beautiful buildings. So at least, you know, we don't see the LDS church. There could be some of these guys, but doing what Benny Hinn does, we don't see them, you know, so, or we don't see even a local bishop living high on the hog from the coffers of the church. So we have to be fair. That's what we've kind of turned to in our show, Ryan, is to try to say, yes, look, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing typing. That's fine. I can donate some money. That's fine. But at the end of the year, if they say, okay, this amount of money was spent for the church, building maintenance and all those things, even if they say, okay, even if the bishop gives this amount of money, that's fine. That's not a problem. But yeah. why so much secrets? 
That's yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I, they just don't want to be transparent on their finances. All right, did we send okay. you? Did we send you A to Z? Yes. Okay. Yes, I got it. I was Derek out of the town. Like I went to New York for a while, but I got it like yesterday. It was in my address, mailing address. So I picked it up from my, uh, from my next door neighbor. Awesome. Thank you, Let us know what you okay. think, Ryan. Thanks for watching. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, let's go to uh, Anthony in Mesa, Arizona. Anthony, you're on Heart of the Matter. You got to turn your computer down, Anthony. Hey. Hey. Yeah, I. Uh, turn that I'm thing down, Anthony. Here. Yeah, my bad. Okay, so I am on. You're on. Okay, I apologize for that. It's all right. Um, so, yeah, I saw Ryan from Virginia and. I had another call. So anyway, I, I apologize. So um, what you're making mention of is like just purely God being a creator, and that's why he was doing that. Like what? Like even so, I like even seeing the post on the Facebook. It's the first time I pulled a Facebook on my laptop and seeing all these uh, posts. But ultimately for me, what like because I am a logical thinker and reasoning and all that kind of stuff and seeing people with all their like Old Testament quarries and all this kind of stuff, I have always seen God say Yahweh God, you know, um, as the writer, like W-R-I-T-E-R. And we are all these kind of stories, and even with John, you know, referring to Jesus as the Logos, the Word. Mm. And what we have now uh, in the scope of, like, you know, our Christian predecessors, uh, paper and ink, you know, is still their stories and that's what we have our say our you know our christian history you know with the bible building up to its nature that we have now and that's it always kind of brought me a, a state of peace so i don't know it's like in that scope of being a creator and a writer and like you know sean mccraney having his story and me anthony having my story and how we all can intermingle and it's to me that's what makes god so wonderful is how we all have our different stories and how we can cross paths periodically and how we each dynamically can affect each other and that's the beauty of god to me you know just in that creation kind of idea that we can just kind of dabble in say making movies or writing stories ourselves novels wise you know, sure. I don't. That just that that majesty that, like, we can try to in our minds try to develop and put out there. But what it's what God has. Uh, it, it's just you know brought forth. It's I don't know. It's just one of those things. And when you said that, I was like, that really sparked it up for me. So praise God. Um, Thanks for your insights, Anthony. I appreciate it, man. I'm sure you've illuminated somebody. Okay, I mean, it <laughs> seems kind of wordy and convoluted, but no. already. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Talk to you. Well, all right, thank you. Okay, bye. Okay, uh, before we go to Mark, uh, this is said, uh, I listened to your episode 477, and you said, to God the nation of Israel was his bride, to whom he betrothed, one to whom he was married, and from now, and he says, and now one to whom he granted a bill of divorcement. He said, I said this. I did. He did. And he says, please tell me where this idea is found in Scripture. He said, you mentioned Exodus, but divorce is not used there. Okay? And then he gives a message, and it says, uh, be mindful of God's covenant and the word which was commanded to thousand generations, even to the covenant which he made with Abraham, with his oath with Isaac, which he had confirmed to the same to the Jacob for the law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. So he cites that passage and says, God has covenanted with Israel to make Israel his bride, and he's covenanted an everlasting covenant. And he says, what is an everlasting covenant? Do you believe God broke the everlasting covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If that statement is true, God is a covenant breaker and cannot be trusted. Well, let me, let me try to explain. I, when God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he made it with the house of Israel, it was conditional. It was predicated on obedience. That's what makes the covenant of grace different because it isn't predicated on our obedience. It was predicated on Christ's obedience. 
But with the nation of Israel, it was predicated on, on a mutual agreement of them coming together. And God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be like a husband to you. That's the imagery we get. And you will be my bride. Let's go forward. But Israel was not obedient. Israel was, was a terrible bride. And, and God said, I'm tired of it. So you wanted to know where, let's see, uh, Jeremiah 3.8. I looked this up right before the show. Jeremiah 3.8 is where God explains what he did. And it says, And I saw when for all the causes of backsliding, Israel committed adultery, and I had her put away and given her a bill of divorce. It's right there in Scripture. So the question is, if he gave her a bill of divorce, and he also gave her an eternal covenant, what he said, an everlasting covenant, did God break his covenant? I would say uh, no, and I'll tell you why. I think he gave her a bill of divorce, and she reaped the harvest of that divorce, but God is faithful. I personally believe that all of Israel has been redeemed. I believe all of Israel will be redeemed by and through God's covenant with Israel. He is, does not fail where men fail, okay? But uh, that does not mean he didn't grant her a bill of divorce for her adul uh, uh, adulterous behavior. And it's right there in uh, Jeremiah 3, verse 8. So check that out yourself if you want to test uh, that reference. Okay, let's, uh, one off air. Uh, does the idea of God having foreknowledge preclude him from changing a timeline, per se, with a miracle or event? Or would the thought be, whatever happened was the original plan all along? You know, uh, that was from Carlos. Carlos, what you're discussing is uh, the difference between his foreknowledge, predestination, and what's called open theism. And open theism says, listen, God does not control things. He does not know the future, but God knows all the potential choices that people will make. He knows all the potential choices, and knowing the choices also knows the outcomes and is able to strategize, but does not know the future. I reject open theism. I believe that God is omniscient. I know those are man-made words. I believe that God knows all things from the beginning. Scripture can support this. I think he knew who he was going to use for what by his foreknowledge of their free will choices. I think he, there's no surprises to God. If there is a surprise to him, he would cease to be God. So he knows when a sparrow is going to fall from the sky. He knows when a hair of the head goes. He knows who does what and where and how. And he is in control of all things, but it's by his foreknowledge and our free will choices. I don't think that uh, there's a divergent plan of choice, uh, and that's the best way I can answer it. Lawton Wilson says, what is your view on Romans 8.29 predestination? To what extent? I think that we are, uh, that God does use predestination in some sense, but, uh, but it's not in the sense that you're elect and you are damned. I think predestination is, I know what you will do. I know what you will be like. I'm going to use you in this capacity. I know what you will be like. I'm going to use you in that capacity. And in the end, I will bring about my will, not yours. I will bring about my will, which is to redeem humankind. So that is my view on predestination. I'm not against it. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying he doesn't use it, but he uses it for good purposes and not for evil. Uh, let's go to Mark in Alberta, Canada on two. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, or uh, uh, AKJA. <laughs> How you doing? I can't say the whole word. That's no, all right. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to know if you'd ever do a show on um, like uh, familiar spirits or um, like soulmates and, or soul ties, I should say, and things like that, because I'm kind of confused on those issues. And I don't know if they're all biblical or not. Because you hear a lot of stuff within the Christian community, too. and so Familiar spirits? Yeah, and soul ties. And what is the other one? Soul what? Soul ties. Soul ties. Yeah, like I hear it within the Christian community, but I don't know if it's actually biblical. Yeah, uh, familiar spirits are, and it's always a negative in Deuteronomy when uh, God talks to Moses about familiar spirits and peeping wizards and all that stuff. It's a very negative mm -hmm. thing, but it's soul ties. I've never heard of that. So I'd have to check that one out, my brother. 
Yeah, you could, and uh, because I have a pastor that talks about it, it's kind of like if you have, um, um, you know, uh, sex with uh, someone you're not married with, and so if you can have a soul tie with that person or whatever. Whoa. Like, that, and then you get married, and then you're always thinking about that person, or something like that. I think you mentioned it, and they just kind of confused me to all get out. So. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to check it out, Mark. I don't know it off the top of my head. Okay, and also, I just wanted to mention on the, the tithing in uh, Canada for the LDS Church, um, it, everything, uh, the funds and everything, all the donations, whatever, they all get uh, electronically sent uh, to the U.S. Oh, yeah, and then they oh, have yeah. a Canadian bank account here. Oh, so yeah. I think they can get away from, they get sent to Salt Lake, and then they can get away from even our Canadian laws, which, because I know... Every June here, uh, our church, uh, you know, my pastor has to form a quorum of at least for the to satisfy the Canadian government to uh, to disclose, you know, what the the books look like. Yeah, they're so, a mul they're a multinational uh, religious conglomerate. They probably have accounts in every country of the world. Yeah, they can get they get around everything. Hey, listen, my daughter just uh, wrote in and said. From, she's in New York. She said that we have a show on Familiar Spirits, May 11th, 2010. So if you go to the archives, you can read or you can listen all about Familiar Spirits from a biblical perspective, uh, May 11th, 2010, Mark. Okay, I'll do that right now. Thanks, my brother. Okay. God bless. Bye. Uh, we have about two or three minutes left. <coughs> Uh, and I'm going to uh, read this is from Veronica. Every church I have ever attended has taught people need to be rapture ready because the rapture is coming soon. I left a particular church I was attending in the 70s and 80s because a great deal of their focus was on rapture readiness. The reverend had written a very dramatic novel, in my opinion, about the rapture and consequences of being left behind and to be ready to go. It was taught by the reverend that a great deal of God's power would be needed and that this power could be supplied by having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but a person could only know if they had the Holy Spirit inside if they spoke in tongues as a sign of God's uh, deliverance. It didn't, I didn't believe it was teaching biblical things, so I left. She says, my question is, where are the evidences for the rapture, for futurism, dispensationalism, Jesus is coming out in the future. Where are the evidences that the pastors use when they read scripture? I had a meeting this morning with a guy, Jason, a friend of mine. We sat and talked for an hour about this very topic, not because of the email. And really, if you look at futurism and dispensationalism, most of it, it in, in theology, it's called eisegetical reading versus exegetical reading. Almost all of futurism is an eisegetical reading of scripture versus an exegetical reading of scripture. When you read scripture exegetically, you read what is said, you take what is there, and you use it. When you read eisegetically, you read into the passage. So if you're reading uh, eisegetically, and, and you read Jesus say, and I will come in the clouds, and the eagles will be gathered together, and, and all these things, eisegetical analysis would, would say, has that happened? And then people would say, I don't think so. And they'd say, that's right, because it still has to happen. They've read into it, and they say, this is why. Exegetically, you would say, Jesus said this. What's the context? What does it mean? And it's a battle we all have. We all will read eisegetically. We will read into Scripture things we want. And again, I'm not going to stand firm. I, people tell me I should. I'm not going to stand firm on it. Jesus could come back tomorrow and surprise us all with a rapture and a destruction and everything else. And he may not come uh, again because he, I believe he came in 70 AD, but I could be wrong. All I'm saying is you have to be careful how you read because you will read in what you want that book to say. And then you will kind of fashion your own beliefs accordingly. Uh, do you think is the earth is roughly 6,000 years old? There's new earth and there's old earthers in the Christian body. I am a I don't care earther. Uh, it could be five days old. It can be 300 billion years old. I don't care because I don't know. 
uh, when it says a day in creation, I don't know if it's 100,000 years or if it's a 24-hour period. I think a day could mean a half a second. God created everything on the first day in a half a second, and the second day a half a second. I think these time things get us mixed up and fighting with each other, so I don't care. Uh, I know that I'm on earth, that there is a God. He created the earth. He created us. He created me, and I'm to love and trust in his son, and we'll end with that. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job, audience. I'm Good job, Alex. Thank you for the music. Going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out. I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 